and Hi. welcome back to our true crime podcast, Don't Blame the Mom. I'm Kate. I'm Hannah. Welcome back, guys. And we are back for episode 18, finally. Yay, we're Yay. getting there. Exactly. Um, I think before we go anywhere, just trigger warning that this is a true crime podcast. We do yes. talk about things that can be sensitive to people. So feel yeah. free to skip ahead at things you don't want to listen to. Or yeah. feel free not to listen at all. Exactly, guys. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, some of these some of these topics today are going to be very heavy. It's a pretty dark one as well, which we're going to get into in just a moment. But yes, we haven't actually been here recording for a few weeks. So, you know, I've been on holiday. You can't tell by my pasty skin, but <laughs> I, I have, I swear. I beat the baby. I beat the baby, but we're back. So how have you been, Kate? I haven't seen you for ages. I know, I've missed you, Hannah. I've missed you as well. We've had, um, yeah, no, I was not away. <laughs> I've just been here slaving away as usual. Uh, your time will come. Not, not long till you go away now, isn't it? Um, August. Okay, yeah, not, not long, not long. <laughs> exactly, but we have got a few, um, actually, no, I want to ask you, what's happened with your bike? Oh my God, did I not tell you about what happened with the no, bike? I'm so behind on everything, tell me. So... <laughs> I have had this bike and it's been in the garden. So I have a communal garden in the apartment block I'm in. We're a small apartment block and there's a communal garden out the back where I've had my bike because I keep meaning to go and get it. I want to get it serviced because I've got big plans to cycle places. Right. Big plans. (laughs) Um, But I keep saying, right, get the bike organized, get it set up. And then, of course, I haven't done it. And standard looking for it. And no. I wasn't actually looking for it. My partner, Sean, had gone out to like drop out the bins or something. Right. And when he came back in, he was like, your bike's gone. <gasps> and I said, what? And he said, yeah, it's in the back of our neighbor's car. What? <laughs> what? Um, oh, my so God. our slightly odd neighbor from downs- one of the downstairs flats had basically stolen my bike. No. I swear. Yeah, so I had to go and knock on his front door and, of course, wouldn't answer the front door. So I wrote him a little note saying, Hi, the bike that's in the back of your car is mine. (laughs) If you wouldn't mind returning it to where you got it from, (laughs) that would be amazing. Yeah, the bloody cheek. And, of course, the fecker was in. And within, like, 10 minutes, the bike was back around the back garden. So what, he actually was just going to steal it? I assume so. What? He's not even a good thief. Like, uh, why would you leave it on display? The car? Well, don't nick anyway, obviously. Don't steal stuff. But if you're going to do it. It was all a bit surreal because his car also is, it's like got blackened out windows at the back. Oh, so my God. So all you could really see was like the silver sheen off the spokes of the bike. <sighs> and it was wow. just because Sean had noticed it was missing. That as he walked past, he wow. saw the wheel. And he said, it just caught my eye. And I just thought, that's Kate's bike. Oh my god. Buddy. Buddy's also back. <laughs> Sorry guys. He's always here. Yeah. So Anyway, guys, moving on. I'm sorry to hear about your bike, but I'm very glad you got it back in the end. Yeah, still hasn't been serviced. Yeah, here we go. So after all that, still <laughs> still waiting to go and get the bike serviced. So guys, we have got some shout outs this week, which we love doing. Big hello to Donal in Ireland. He listens whilst he's working from home 
And um, I hope it makes it less boring for you, Donald. Um, I hope it makes work a little more, uh, uh, what's the word? A little Ent- more mm-hmm. entertaining, I Entertaining, I, I guess, or, or interesting, maybe. But um, thank you so much for the message, and we really appreciate that. Also, Christina from America, she said she loves being on this journey with us. Oh, that's so, so nice. sweet, Christina. Thank you. We yeah. love having you on our journey. Yes, we do. And please continue with us on this journey on our escapade um and christy nicole reached out she said she loves the podcast and she said she's going to tell all her friends about it and she said she loves our accents yay thank you thank you so so nice now also guys we have got some updates this week some really interesting ones as well about cases that we have covered in past episodes Ooh, hannah you do like to surprise me yes well because as soon as i saw them i was like we have to mention this So we've got an update on the Delphi murders case. So the episode we did on uh, Libby German and Abby Williams, I think it was maybe episode 11, I think. Don't try to remember. No, I won't. I won't. I won't even try it. (laughs) So Richard Allen, the guy who was arrested in their murders, has confessed to killing Libby German and Abby Williams to several people. And according to the state's prosecutor, he's made admissions of guilt and to more than one person. So he's made multiple confessions to multiple people um, where he's incarcerated. So this guy is talking now. Um, His own attorney acknowledged the confessions saying that he had made, quote, incriminating statements at the facility. And he then said those admissions shouldn't be trusted due to his client's mental state. Sure, Jam. Mm. Whatever. Don't believe it. So, um, yeah, watch this space, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now this is another one. This is going to really get your goat, Kate. So buckle up, okay? Okay. Um, well, Levi Belfield, who we oh. covered in episode one. It was, we do know that for sure. It was definitely episode <laughs> one. Has now been granted permission to marry. No. Yep. To marry his girlfriend whilst in prison, serving his two life sentences for the murders of... Emily Delagrange and Marsha McDonald and Millie Dowler. What's the point? Like, didn't he meet this person while he was in prison? Yes, he did. He did. And there's more. So there are no current legal routes to block the marriage, the Ministry of Justice has said, acknowledging the pain and anger his victims' families must be feeling. Well, guys, how about we make some legal routes to block this marriage? And, uh, you know, maybe start changing some laws. I don't know. Surely this can't keep happening. It shouldn't be allowed. It's so hard, isn't it? Because I, I get it that it's meant to be about everyone having human rights and stuff. Yeah. But like, there's a lot of people who don't have human rights purely because they're not alive because he Absolutely. exists. Absolutely. Exactly. Where were his victims' human rights, yeah. you know? Um, and Belfield has also claimed he has been discriminated against for not being allowed to wear an engagement ring in prison. And he has spent 30 grand of taxpayers' money to fund his legal battles to win the right to marry. Oh, so throw me a river, that, Levi. Exactly. So that is just wonderful. Um, the British justice system sometimes just beggars belief, doesn't it? Really? Beggars belief. It yeah. just beggars belief. So there we go, guys. Those are the little updates today for you. Well, now. I mean, that Levi one is absolutely... Yes. Horrifying. Get rid of my phone now so I don't get any interference like we have before. Okay. <laughs> now, today, guys, we have got a really heavy one. This is a case that has been requested quite a few times, hasn't it? It has, actually, yeah. Mm, it's. Uh, we need to start remembering who's been requesting these things. We I will. know. Well, this has been a, f- a few people have requested this. Yeah. Actually, 
I can't remember exactly who, but I know even one of my sisters, Becca, she um, she said, when are you going to do this one? Because it's a it's a big one. Yeah. And also it's one of the first true crime books I'd ever read. And she'd actually read the same one from when we were little. I probably got it from a car boot sale again. But it's a it's a huge case um, from from in British history and and pretty much around the world as well. How old do you think you were when you read this case? Probably like 10. Jesus. I, I, I used to read these things when I was Let, very worryingly young <laughs> let's tell the people what it was you were reading at the age of 10 <laughs> yes exactly guys so episode 18 is going to be about the moors murderers so myra hindley and ian brady told you it's going to be a dark one guys so mm-hmm. be get ready so this is an utterly chilling case and one of britain's most infamous string of murders in history We've got another killer couple on our hands. Yes. Yep. We've got a second killer couple. No. Well, um, like a man and woman couple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the toolbox killers weren't a couple, but they were a pair. Yeah. So yes, and trigger warning. It is going to be a really tough one. It's going to get pretty dark. It does involve um, children as well. So. Just a trigger warning. I'm sure a lot of you guys have already heard of this case anyway. Oh, um, and all of our um, resources and stuff will be in our show notes as yes, always. We'll always put the sources at the end of the uh, the episodes. Um, so we're going all the way back today to 1963. And in that year, Myra Hindley and her psychopathic boyfriend, Ian Brady, committed five truly heinous, sadistic murders. Together... This twisted couple led five innocent young victims, including children, onto Saddleworth Moor, known as the Moors in Greater Manchester, where they carried out their unbelievably evil crimes before burying their bodies there. Not only that, they also regularly revisited the burial sites with unwitting friends and they went together as a couple with walking their dog and had picnics on the grave sites just to relive their crimes. They would, yeah, they would kind of, I guess what's the word well yeah relive the crimes by doing that yeah which the is... war was almost their trophy wasn't it yeah exactly anyway. yeah absolutely so right up until his death in 2017 brady showed zero remorse and would unapologetically refer to the murders as an existential exercise like it was somehow his right and purpose in life to kill and he should have been allowed to do so yeah, he genuinely well. thought that so this is the case of ian brady and myra hindley the Moors murders. Oh, get ready, guys. Yeah, chilling. Buckle up. Yeah. So, Ian Brady. I think we're going to start with him first because mm. he's a very, very important cog in this case. On second of January, nineteen thirty-eight, a boy, a baby boy, was born in a hospital in Glasgow, Scotland, where my dad's from, mm. and he was named Ian Duncan Stewart. His mother Peggy was a single mum. Apparently, his dad was a journalist who died before Ian was born. But then other reports say he never knew his father's identity. So later on, it transpired his dad may in fact have been alive and living in Australia throughout Ian's life. What? So yeah, so there's some conflicting reports there. So I mean, believe what you will, but those are the different things that I've read. But needless to say, Ian never knew his father. We, we definitely know that. By the time Ian was four months old, Peggy was really struggling as a single parent. She couldn't afford a babysitter on her single wage. So she left Ian for long periods of time with a family to make money working as a waitress. And finally, this became too much for her. She wasn't coping and consequently allowed the family looking after him, who were actually family friends, to unofficially adopt baby Ian. 
but she'd still come and visit sometimes until he was around 12, but she never actually told him she was his mum. But Oh, really? No, no, not officially. But I do wonder if that had any impact on him when he did find out, because it must have been really confusing for a young person. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's like Ted Bundy. He didn't know his mum, Louise, was his mum for years either. That's so interesting. Yeah, he thought she was his sister. Um, and look how he turned out. So, you know, not, not, not ideal, is it? Um, That's it. But, that, must be, yes. that must be in the McDonald tryouts. It, it, it has to be, guys. I mean, I always seem, seem to bring it back to Bundy. It always boils back down to that, that guy, doesn't it? Who knows? But um, perhaps Peggy just didn't want to confuse or unsettle him too much at a young age. And she obviously meant it with good intentions. So I'm not blaming the mum over here, guys. I'm just saying. Don't blame the mum. <laughs> and she did apparently spoil him during her visits with gifts and sweets, which gave him the impression eventually down the line that Peggy probably was his real mum. He was quite a smart cookie for sure, Ian. He was a, a very intelligent child and, and adult. Um, so the family he was living with were literally like a real family to him. Ian had become very much like another child to them and they treated him with warmth, provided him with a stable family structure as much as they could and treated him like one of their own kids. But despite having this family structure around him, Ian was still somewhat of a solitary, difficult child through no fault of his adoptive parents. So despite... These people are amazing. Like they've... Mm. That's a really big helping hand to give Definitely. somebody to take on a child. Oh, completely. Especially sort of un planned as well you know yeah. because it, especially back in those days it would have been expensive to have your own children and another one mm. to take care of so um despite all the efforts they went to involve him and make him part of their family and get him to make friends and join in with things he was still seen to be a very complex and odd child he was later described as an intelligent but troubled kid so it seems to have been misreported sometimes that Ian's childhood was really bad. But looking into it, he was very much yeah. loved by, mm. yeah, by like his... By his mom and this yeah, like he, step family. Exactly. Or like, adoptive family. It, it could have been a lot worse, you know? Like, it doesn't... His, the situation you up in does not explain anything no. that, that is, is to come. And his mom, even even if she was absent a lot of the time, she still was coming to see him sometimes. So he didn't suffer any abuse or mistreatment or anything like that. Unlike some other serial killers, like uh, John Wayne Gacy, um, you know, childhood abuse, Ed Gein, childhood abuse, Ed Kemper, Gary Ridgway, just to name but a few. They mm. all had very um, troubling childhoods where, again, it doesn't make an excuse for their actions, but you can start to see those seeds of, of you know, poison being sort of grown in them yeah you know as an adult when recounting memories of his childhood ian claimed he absolutely despised people who hurt animals when he was child and and up until you know the day he died so that's the polar opposite of what we would usually find about most serial killers in their youth who would commonly start out with torturing or killing animals and smaller creatures before progressing as they get older into hunting humans and, and hurting them. Um, and that is part of the McDonald triad. Um, then I've heard other reports claiming he was abusive to animals. So again, believe what you will, but I am going to believe Ian on this one because most of the things that I have read um, or, or seen it is kind of like a consistent thing that he loved animals 
much more than he liked human beings Mm -hmm. and it's something he was very vocal about and he never changed his stance on that so I actually do believe that Um, and he had dogs and pets and he he loved them so as he grew older unlike other local kids who were interested in football and sports and girls Ian had developed a concerning penchant for burglary and robbery this is despite him winning a place at a really good school on the grounds of his intelligence um, and he, he was known as like a really clever, an exceptionally clever kid, you know. But this didn't stop him from becoming a bully. It was clear from a young age he really enjoyed control over others. I sometimes think, though, like if children are really intelligent, mm. sometimes they can turn into like this kind of bullying behavior yeah. because they're like maybe a bit bored and they're a bit like, God, how are you so slow? Yeah, you know? yeah. And because they're just way ahead. Yeah, exactly. it could be. It's almost like using your, something that's really positive, you know, like your intelligence, mm. but for, for, for the wrong, for it, bad yeah, things. Negative you know, way, yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he later admitted, and this is a trigger warning, guys, he had cornered, pushed over and raped a classmate at school for grassing on him and the gang of boys he hung out with for stealing things. So this wow. was, yeah, exactly. I mean, How old was he? Um, I, I don't know exactly, but he was at this school that he'd won a place at. He was a, te- he was a young teen. So, okay, yeah. Young so teen. secondary school? Yeah, secondary yeah. school. That's what we call it. I guess you'd call it... High school. Oh, high school in America, yeah. So he was. this is like a gang of guys where together they would rob houses, get into loads of fights, um, just real troublemakers, a bunch of, bunch of ne'er-do-wells, if you will. Ne'er-do-wells. Ne'er-do-wells. I love that saying. <laughs> um, at 16, so this is just before he was 16. So at 16, this is when he started to get caught for his petty crimes and was sent to spend time in young offenders facilities for the house burglaries. And also at this stage, he'd strangely become really interested in Nazis and the works of Nietzsche. That's really hard word to pronounce. Nietzsche. Nietzsche, yeah. Nietzsche. And the Marquise de Sade. Um, the Marquise de Sade is a French nobleman from the 1800s. He was a politician, a philosopher, and a writer. And he was famous for his writings of libertine sexuality. So um, immoral, depraved sexuality, basically, mm-hmm. which depicted lots of violence, um, forcible sodomy, child rape, and sexual crimes. So reading things like this was not normal for a young 16-year-old, you know? Um yeah, yeah. I had to look up what Marcus de Sade was. So thank you, Wikipedia, for that one. Yeah. Um, all of this was, of course, extremely concerning. Because, um, yeah, 16 is such a pivotal age, like going from childhood, like young teenage, like to childhood into very early stages of sort of, you know, not adulthood, but well, you're getting towards the 18 mark and well, your brain's a, still learning yeah, who as, you are. As a 16 year old, you're right in the middle of this kind of puberty. Like it's yeah. kind of 14 for boys is kind of where they hit puberty. Yeah. So by 16, you're kind of, you're a bit all over the place. You're a bit all over the place. Your hormones are all over the place yeah. as well, but you're starting to mold into who you're going yeah. to become. So it's very, you're, what you're learning here about sexuality is very important. It's, it is. And that's the thing. That's why it's such a pivotal age for him to, and quite a worrying age for him to be looking into things like that are that dark you know yeah, absolutely it's it's very worrying yeah. and, i mean we'll see why <laughs> yes absolutely when this got really out of hand at 16 his adoptive family felt they've got no choice but to return ian to who he now knew as his mum peggy and her now husband patrick brady who were living in a town called huddersfield in manchester this was mainly in order for him to avoid being sentenced and incarcerated for yet another burglary um Having moved in with them, it turned out Ian actually really loved his new stepfather. 
So much so that he ended up taking his surname as a way to ingratiate himself in his new family, um, his new family setup, and forge a deeper bond with them. So this now changes his name from Ian Stewart to a name so infamous that one day people the world over will recognize it and mm. and shudder when they hear it. His oh, name, that poor fella. Yeah, his name is now Ian Brady. That so Patrick Brady is that the name of the stepdad? Yeah. God, he must be raging. Well, he would have been. I, I can't imagine he's alive now. No, well, but yeah. absolutely. Now, 17, he's now 17, his fascination with the workings of the Third Reich, the Nazis, the Marquise de Sade was becoming really disturbing as he really started to aspire to be like these sadistic authors and and people. And sadistic is a word which will consistently be used in Mm. conjunction with the name Ian Brady going forward. Do you know that, um, say, what is the... Sadism? Yeah, it's actually derived from Marquis de Sade's surname. Yeah, you know what? It makes sense, doesn't mm. it? Like de Sade. Wow, I have that's a written crazy. Somewhere, so I'll tell you again. We'll later. have to look into that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's here that you can start to see the making of a really cold, sadistic, and cruel future serial killer. Someone who was really gravitating towards the darkness and cruelty that had started to interest him, just like the Nazis and the sadistic stories he'd religiously read. All things that a teenager should be steering well away from. Ian, however, was now obsessed with it. Clearly, he was driven by something very sinister in him that had been there from a young age. His favourite book was Mein Kampf, which is a Nazi manifesto written by Adolf Hitler. It was a book he'd later read often to a certain girlfriend he is soon to meet, so he could educate her on Nazism. I hope I'm saying that right. Nazism. Yeah. Yeah. He even taught himself to read and talk German to be more like them. And it wasn't long before Brady returned to his criminal ways, which ultimately landed him up in Strangeways prison at 17. Now, Strangeways doesn't sound like the nicest place in the world, does it? (laughs) Strangeways. Oh, my God. It sounds like a name you'd give like a creepy prison in a movie. It sounds like a child made up that name. It literally does. It's like the name Wormwood Scrubs, another prison in London, where incidentally, he was also incarcerated in his later years as a convicted killer. Where are they coming up with these names? What are they going, I literally, I've driven past that so many times after work and I'm like, oh my God, that's Wormwood's Grubs. We've just gone into like a kindergarten and said, right, can you all name a prison for me? Yeah, it sounds like something from Harry Potter, doesn't it? Strange way, it does. Um, He actually said that, um, because as I said, he actually went to Wormwood Scrubs later down the line as well. He actually said that that was his favourite prison as they let him play chess whenever he wanted. But that was when he was an adult. So a bit about Strange Ways, because it's such an odd name. It's an adult male category A category A and B prison in Manchester. So get this, the prison features an execution chamber from before capital punishment was abolished in the UK in the 1960s. The last execution took place in the prison in 1964. Um, Ooh. Yeah. And here at Strangeways, he was forced to toughen up a lot as it's a pretty hardcore prison by British standards. There was a lot of dangerous prisoners there, not like the young offenders type places he'd you know, been in and out of before. Yeah, this was another level. So whilst he was incarcerated there, he learned bookkeeping skills. So he's spending his time wisely, um, a skill he'd later use to find himself a job. 
And um, he was released in 1957 and took different manual jobs here and there. Eventually, he's hired as a stock clerk at a Manchester firm in 1959 called Millwood's Merchandising. And it was here that Ian Brady was to meet his future partner in crime and fellow sadistic child killer, Myra Hindley. The two of them would become a match made in hell. In Hindley, the narcissistic Ian saw an obsessed follower, someone he could teach and mould like a teacher would a pupil. Um, for example, Ian was obsessed with Irma Grease, the terrifying female Nazi concentration camp guard. So he'd encourage My Myra, who was willing to dress like her to please him. He'd basically get her to dress up in weird outfits like her, which is mm, crazy. It'd be like, you know, uh, leather trousers yeah. and jackets and boots and stuff yeah. like that. So she started wearing stilettos and stuff, but she didn't before. Right. In order to look like this woman. I mean, that is crazy. She's very stern. You know that really... Yeah. Google Irma Grease, guys, because yeah, she's, she's a very stern, harsh-looking mm. lady. Now, Ian is now 22 years old and started to talk about his obsession with the idea of abducting and killing a child one day as they took one of their many jaunts to Saddleworth Moor. Um, together, they would sit for hours on the moors, the master and his equally evil protege. The moors was often referred to as the third person in their now relationship as they went there so often. Saddleworth Moor. A little, exactly. <laughs> Saddleworth Moor is a moorland in northwest England which reaches more than 400 metres above sea level. It's in the dark peak area of the Peak District National Park, which is a beautiful place. Have you been there? No. I really want to go to the Peak District and uh, those kind of things, a Lake District and all that. Um, oh, maybe I've been to Lake District. Oh, okay. You can't remember. <laughs> can't have been that great. <laughs> Jay. Mm. Oh. Um, we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> have to not. have a look. They would walk there and sit there together, nobody else around, just the sound of their twisted fantasies against a picturesque backdrop. And they'd be daydreaming, talking, and scheming, and sharing their evil ideas, discussing things they'd love to act out about torture, rape, and murder. How to put these sick ideas into action was to come. And ultimately, one day their evil plans would become a reality. So we now know Ian Brady was a dominant, intelligent, cold, sadistic young man. And when you look at pictures of him, it's like he is dead behind the eyes. Like, it, it reminds me of, you know, the other killers. So some killers who literally just have black eyes yeah. when you see their pictures. Like, I call them shark eyes. Like, Ted Bundy had shark eyes. I've got to stop talking about Ted Bundy. <laughs> like, he had shark eyes. And you, like, Richard Ramirez, like, black. Yeah, just Richard like, Ramirez Yeah, and did. Ian Brady is the same. When you look mm. at his, like, really famous um, mugshot, there's just nothing there. Yeah. It's mad. And I, like, oh, I really do. Dennis Rader, he's got the same eyes as well. There's yeah. just like nothing there. And what's his name? East Stereo Rapist. Fella? Oh, Joseph James D'Angelo yeah. as well. Yeah. So um, he's now met the person who will prove to be equally as evil as him to fantasize and help him make all his fantasies a reality. And that person was the she-devil herself in my eyes, Myra Hindley. Yes. So Myra Hindley is born in Manchester on the 23rd of July in 1942, the day before Hannah, which actually makes her a Leo. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh no, I love Leos. I don't love that one, that's for sure. She's not allowed to be a Leo. So she was born to parents Nellie and Bob Hindley. Nellie was only 22 when Myra was born. And at the time, Bob was in the army fighting in World War II. Mm. Yeah. So they were not a wealthy family, like most families around that time. Uh, they lived in the working class area of Gorton in Manchester. Uh -huh. um, so Nellie moved in with her mother, Ellen Gorton, 
while Bob was away fighting the war and they stayed there until the war was over. And that wasn't really unusual at the time mm. to have to be living with family and stuff to help out in those kind of situations. Yeah. Um, so again, Marva had, although they did, she did grow up poor, she definitely was no different to anybody else mm-hmm. in her area, in her friendship circle, in how she grew up. Everyone was kind of in yeah. a similar boat. Yeah. Um, so Marva's younger sister, Maureen, was born on the 21st of August, 1946. There was four years between the girls and the sisters were very close and grew up to have a very strong sisterly bond. Um, however, Myra actually moved back in with her grandmother, Ellen, shortly after Maureen's birth. Um, the household where her father was now back from the war was becoming a very hostile environment. Mm. Her father's aggression was not somewhere that Nettie felt that Myra should be. Um, at the time, her father was known to be an alcoholic and very violent and aggressive towards Mara's mother, Nellie. As Mara grew older, she was known amongst her peers for being a street fighter. So she was strong-willed and someone who would stand up, for, up to the bullies of both herself and other children. Scrappy. Absolutely. Mm. Um, she had her father to teach her how to fight. And after a boy had hurt her in the playground at school... From then on, she became a protector for the underdog. She would look after her sister, her sister's friend, Pauline Reed. Now, keep this name in mind because it will come up again. Yeah. And a boy named Michael Higgins, who was 13, so was two years her junior at the time. So she had actually witnessed Michael being bullied and she had gone to stand up for him. So because of this, they developed a close friendship, which was cut short when he died in a tragic accident at a local reservoir. Now, Myra was absolutely devastated by Michael's death. Mm. He wasn't a strong swimmer, and she would often keep an eye on him when they would go swimming together. That day, she hadn't gone swimming with them, and she blamed herself, believing that it wouldn't have happened if she had been there. So after Michael's death, she became obsessed with religion, and she became, she became a devout Catholic after mm. this. <laughs> um, I know. The irony. The irony of it all, exactly. She... So Mary Lott was also a good student. Now, she loved to read English literature. And although she was a good student, her attendance was really poor. Mm. And this was partly, her grandmother was partly to blame for this. She really wasn't opposed to Myra missing school and would quite often let her miss school to stay at home and keep her company. Um, <laughs> Kids are going to say no to that, are yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely not. No. So, but I do think her grandmother was a lovely person. Blah, blah, blah. She right. was just being a little bit bad. Just a little lonely, maybe. Yeah, maybe just a little bit lonely. Mm. Um, Myra was also a babysitter to local children. Oh, Lord. Which is terrifying to think, as we know like the, the, the longer story. Yeah. So she was known to be good to children, and children liked her and mm. were drawn to her. Now, she did use this to her advantage later on. So at 16, she left school to begin working. She worked in numerous jobs, was constantly switching from job to job, such things, temping, office work, receptionist work, typist, catering, you name it, she did it. So she actually got engaged on her 18th birthday to her boyfriend at the time, Ronnie Sinclair. Now, Nellie wasn't very happy with this. She thought that Myra was too young and wanted her to wait until she was older. Um, Now, over time, Myra actually started to, to agree with this. She became really uninterested in marriage and didn't want to end up like her friends and family around her in what she perceived to be trapped marriages. She felt that once women got married, suddenly they were 
kind of tied to the household. Yeah. Tied to, and I suppose back in those days, though, they probably of, were. It was much more sort of traditional, absolutely. you know, the wife stays home, has children, mm-hmm. does the dishes, that kind of thing. The man goes out and works and goes for a drink after. Yeah. It was and, you know, very different. She told stories about walking like how she was sometimes she'd be walking down the street and just looking in the windows of houses as she walked by mm. and would just see these women in the houses cleaning or sitting or making dinner or whatever yeah. and she was like I don't want to be like that right um so she did have that type of view now she didn't actually express these feelings to friends and family at the time because she didn't want to upset anyone with these views mm. or her opinions so she did say that she always kept that to herself so on the 16th of January, 1961, Myra started working for a company called Millward's Merchandising Company. Ah. Mm, I've heard of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this company supplied chemicals to the cotton growing industry. So she worked directly under one of the clerks called Tom. Now, I haven't written in Tom's surname, interestingly. Maybe Tom doesn't <laughs> want his surname known or associated with her. Potentially. So there were, however, three clerks in the office. And this is where she goes on to meet Ian Brady. She later speaks about falling in love with Brady at first sight, calling it an immediate fatal attraction. No shit, Sherlock. I know. Um, Brady actually initially didn't pay much attention to Myra and she pined after him for the best part of a year. She was always making sure she looked her best when she arrived in the office. She dressed up. She started dressing much better. Um, she liked that he was older and she liked this strong and dominant personality that mm. she saw in him. Yeah. And while others saw somebody who was controlling and easily angered, she, probably because she came from an aggressive background anyway with her own father, Yeah. none of that really bothered her. She actually didn't mind if he got loud and shouty when... She's quite used to it. Yeah, well, mm. he used to be big into betting and I think she would hear him ringing up the bookies to see how we'd get on. If he got on well, he'd be happy. And if he didn't, he'd be shouting and screaming down the phone. Yeah, Yeah, and she'd hear him in the office. And whilst others found this to be a bit obnoxious, it didn't really bother her. So eventually she breaks off her engagement with Ronnie, who was heartbroken. But she was far too interested in Brady to even care. So she used to walk past Brady's house, even taking her auntie's baby son and wheeling him up and down the street. Oh my lord. <laughs> She'd hang up hang out at the pub at the end of the street, all in the hopes of bumping into him by accident. Oh no. I know. I feel like I have done that before. I mean so I might feel call like this I've definitely done that before at like school and stuff. You know, it is actually because these are the days before social media. <laughs> no, that's what I was gonna say, because normally you just be like, Oh, okay, you know, look on their Instagram, this is where it looks like they are. Let's just turn up there. Yeah. But I suppose those days you have to actually do some groundwork. You, yeah. have, to, you have to turn <laughs> up their house. <laughs> You had to go the whole hog. Yeah, literally the lens that people would go to to get yeah. noticed, right? Literally. I did I did crack up when I read that, to be fair. Um, so she was still not getting any attention or the attention that she wanted from me in anyway. So she started looking at this type of stuff he was reading and then she went to the library and started loaning similar things. Things that she thought he might be interested in, such as Wordsworth was something that she rented or loaned. Mm. So she'd sit reading it nonchalantly in front of him at work and just waiting for him to notice and approach her, which he actually did when she had this Wordsworth. So it worked. It did work. Um, but again, it didn't really get much further than that. Finally... At the staff Christmas party in December 1961. So this is literally a year. Oh my God, she grafted. She grafted hard for this guy. Um, So she got her wish and they connected. 
Body what do you mean connected? Well, I'm going to tell you. Physically or? <laughs> oh, tell me. No, I'll, please do. <laughs> let me tell you. So Bri- Bri- Brady asked Moira to dance and apparently he was a really awkward dancer, like oh. trampling on her toes. And, oh God, I can imagine he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she quite liked that he didn't drink beer and only red wine, the pretentious fool. But anyway, afterwards they carried on drinking beer and they went out frequenting numerous bars. So they basically did a pub crawl. Nice, love a pub crawl. So that evening, he walked her home to her grandmother's house where he tried to invite himself in. Now, Myra actually refused him, but she did kiss him. And she said that the kiss was dreadful. She knew by the kiss that he had never actually kissed anyone before. <gasps> he was mauling her face by the sounds of it. Like he oh, hurt her. Oh, grim. Yeah. <laughs> like I think he bit her lip or something. I don't want to imagine Ian Brady's <laughs> as a kiss. Like, yuck. yuck. I know. Gross. Mm. Um, so their next date, they went to the movies, and apparently it was to see Judgment at Nuremberg, or Nuremberg, um, a movie depicting the trial of four judges and prosecutors who stand trial for crimes against humanity during the Nazi regime in Germany. So it's loosely based on the Nuremberg military tr- tribunals. Mm-hmm. Um, but Myra actually lost her virginity to Ian that evening. She described it as a violent uh, encounter and not at all romantic. Oh. Which kind of fits in with the rest of their relationship in terms of... Yeah, it starts as it goes on, doesn't it? That is how it continued for them. Mm. Um, from here, the relationship developed, albeit slowly. Ian was not one for putting on public, public displays of affection. He would ignore Myra for significant periods of time and then pick her back up again and fuss all over her. It was all grooming techniques. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Hot and cold, keep them on their toes, always yeah. wanting more. Yeah. Brady would tell Mara that he hated religion and asked her if God existed, why did he let her friend Michael die? And it was around this time that Mara starts pulling away from her religious beliefs. Oh. Yeah. So when Henry's boss retired, Tom, when your man Tom, Tom retired, love a bit of Tom. Brady was promoted, which meant that Hindley now worked directly for him. Myra was obsessed with him by this point. She had stopped going out with her friends as she always wanted to be available for Brady when he came knocking on her door. Brady. 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 He's got a girl's name now. <laughs> Master of disguises now. Uh, Brady when he came knocking on her door. So he used to call her Hess after one of Hitler's yeah. deputies. It was his little nickname for her. Um, so they were seeing each other secretly at this stage. And Brady would make them listen to Nazi records um, and Hitler's Inferno marching songs and hate speeches on his vinyl at home. How boring. I know. Um, but together they did love animals. As Hannah said, I am truly with you that they did love animals. Yeah. Brady had a dog called Bruce and Myra's granny Ellen had a collie called Lassie. So they would physically and verbally abuse known animal abusers acting as vigilantes. So seeking out news stories or overheard rumours of owners abusing their animals and they would enact revenge beatings on them or throw bricks through their windows. I mean, I'll be honest, this is like the only redeeming qualities I have heard they're, of them having their vigilante because tactics. You, yeah, well, look, I mean, anyone who hurts animals, I hate, and mm. I think deserves to be, you know, treated badly. Have shall a we brick say. thrown through their window yeah, by because, Hannah. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's the worst, isn't it? Well, it's not the worst, but I mean, anyone who hurts animals, you know, I'll fuck get them. you a few bricks, Hannah, and just type your name Thank onto you. them so you can chuck them through some local windows. Thanks. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, he was very controlling. If he didn't like what she was wearing, he would make her change. So one time, even telling her to strip her top off in the street, which apparently she did. Um, Myra claims that he drugged her one night using her grandmother's sleeping tablets. He raped her, bit her and photographed her while she lay unconscious. He showed her the photographs days later and she had no recollection. But she said it scared her so badly that she wrote a letter to the police saying that if she disappeared, her body would be found on Saddleworth Moors. Do you think that's, do we know this is true or not? No, this is all from her. Okay, well, yeah. She's not so exactly take that someone... with a pinch of salt. Yeah, absolutely. An ocean worth of salt, if you will. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> whole seven seas of salt. <laughs> um, the way Myra described the relationship later would be classified now as a sado masochist relationship Brady would receive gratification from pain of Hin- of the pain of Hindley during intercourse although when we look deeper into this the same really can be said, said for Myra if what Ian says later is to be believed mm. that they were really equally as bad as each other right and she does talk about enjoying the situations where she was the dominant character yeah they very much from what I've read, had a kind of role play relationship where one would be the submissive and one would be the dominant. dominant, Yeah. And there was a lot of pain factor involved with it. Yeah. Uh, Pain, pleasure. Um, So, and I don't know that it was always... One-sided. Always wanted. I mean, some people genuinely enjoy that and generally want that and they have limits that they will go to and some people's limits are bigger than others and that's fine. Whereas I think that maybe at times it was, you know, really taken out of control. Right. Um, so as I mentioned earlier Hindley was good with children and um, Brady began confiding in Myra his deepest darkest desires to rape and murder children and now instead of being repulsed Myra actually agreed to help him with these ambitions Myra borrowed a black van from a family friend that she used to babysit for they stalked the streets of Manchester taking photos with Brady's camera of children even hiding outside of the primary school that Myra used to go to Um, Now, as I mentioned earlier, Hindley was good with children and she knew that she'd be able to lure a child into a false sense of security and agreed with Brady that she would help. So Brady would practice carrying Hindley across the moors on his shoulder in order to practice carrying a dead body weight. So he'd tell her to go as limp as she could so that she would be like a dead weight so they could practice Jeez, the premeditation so premeditated yeah. everything was premeditated it was planned almost minute to minute yeah absolutely thoroughly Henry says that Brady taught her how to switch off her emotions and not let them get in the way of their diabolical plans so on the 12th of July 1963 Henley borrowed the black van again the plan was to drive around with Henley in the van and Brady on his motorbike behind her he would flash the lights on his motorbike when he saw a child that he wanted. Initially, he saw a small girl. Hindley slowed down with the van, but then recognised this young girl. It was her neighbour, Mary Rook, who was only eight years of age. So Brady flashed the lights for her to stop and asked her to explain why she had driven past. She told him that she knew that little girl and she was too young and that people would care more if a child was young. Yeah. They should look for somebody a bit older. So Brady thought this is probably a good idea and they continued on. Hindley saw another young girl, Pauline Reed, who we mentioned earlier. So Pauline at the time is 16 years of age. 
So Hindley knew Pauline, in fact. She was a friend of her sister Maureen's, who Myra had acted as a protector to as a child against the local bullies. Wow. So she went from being her protector to being her abductor. Yeah, I mean, that is just insane. And the fact that they're going for someone that they know, that can be linked back to them, the police really looked, you know, usually serial killers try to avoid people that they know because it, it creates a chain back to them. Mm. The fact that they started with someone who she knew and, and knew well yeah. is, is insane. I did read, just in one place, and I can't even remember where, I did hear that she hadn't actually told him that she knew Pauline until afterwards and that he was cross about it. Right. Um, but I'm not sure. I only, I literally, I just skimmed that somewhere. Yeah. Um, so their families knew each other. Um, Pauline's dad, Amos, was a regular in the same pub as Hindley's father, Bob, and they often drank together if they bumped into each other there. So Pauline was daughter to Amos, her father, her mother, Joan, and her brother, and had a brother called Paul. Paul? Pauline and Paul. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, cute. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, um, Pauline, cute. Can this be true? Um, as a child, she enjoyed poetry and singing and dancing. She was actually training to be a baker in her father's bakery, and she loved it. Um, on Friday the 12th of July, 1963, she closed up the bakery and left and went to visit a friend. She was hoping to go to a dance at the British Railway Social Club that evening, but her friend was not allowed to go. She decided that she would go to the dance alone. She really, really wanted to go. Yeah, she, we've been new... there. You know, you really want to go out that night. Everyone's like, no, I can't, sorry. But it's like, no, you know what? I'm just going to go. Yeah, she had got like new shoes or a new dress. It was something it was new. White stilettos, wasn't it? It was a new brand white new white stilettos. stilettos. They were nice. The shoes. Well, yeah. So she really wanted to go. She wanted to wear the shoes. She knew she was dressed up to the night. She knew she looked great. So the two, two of her friends, Pat, her best friend, and another friend, decided that actually they were going to surprise her and they were going to go to the dance. So they saw Pauline walking towards the dance and initially they followed her. And they then when she got to a certain point, they said, right, we'll go walk down this way and we'll surprise her and meet her at the dance. When she never arrived, they decide that, decided that she had thought the better of going alone. And so they all went home so, and thought nothing more of it. So tragic. I know. In the meantime, Hinley had stopped the van and offered Pauline a lift, which she accepted. Then the ruse begins. They use this ruse time and time again. Hinley told Pauline that she had lost a glove at the moors and was very sentimental to her. And will Pauline please help her find it? She really, really was upset about it. So Pauline agrees. She knew. She knew Marla. Yeah, she yeah of course. Up with her. And, she's, and she's also a female. And I'm, you know, you're not going to be as intimidated by getting in with a female, you know, as well, a she, woman. You know, I'm not being sexist, but it's just true, isn't it? Like, yeah. It's way less intimidating, especially back then. There was no such thing as a killer British couple back then. Ever. No. And as you say, nobody would have expected a woman. Never. But regardless, nobody was even ex- expecting killer at this stage. No. This was just somebody she knew asking her to go to the moors to help her find a glove that she was yeah. had sentimental value to her. Yeah. Hindley says that Brady got to the moor first, and then when she arrived, he told her to move the van to a safer spot. Brady and Pauline went into the moor to search for this glove, and Pauline moved the van. She says she had no idea what happened on the moor. She said she waited until Brady knocked on the window to say that he needed help burying the body. Myra says that Brady spoke about the fight that Pauline gave him and that the next victim would need to be younger and easier to control. Um, Now, she also says that 
if she felt that if she showed any weakness that Ian would end up killing her and putting her in a shallow grave too. Mm. Now, Brady says that Hindley was a willing participant and was involved in the sexual abuse and torture of Pauline. He even says that she was getting more enjoyment out of it than him, that it actually shocked him to see this sadistic side to her. Mm. He claims that she snapped the locket that Pauline was wearing around her neck. And this oh. locket had been her mother's that she yeah. borrowed, let her borrow to wear that night. Um, and he says that he actually slapped Myra around the face in order to try and bring some sense back into her, saying that the pupil had become the master. Mm. I know. So anyway, both agree that, that they buried the body together. Pauline's throat had been cut so deeply that she was almost decapitated. She had been tortured and sexually abused. Myra does mention hearing Pauline's last breath, so she must have been relatively close mm-hmm. at the time of the murder, if that is the case. Brady wrapped the spade in plastic and put it and the motorbike into the back of the van. He wrapped the knife in newspaper and put it in the window of the van. He was very concerned about leaving forensic evidence, which actually makes him way before his time in yeah. that department. Shows how intelligent he was there. Absolutely. Um, on their way home, they saw Pauline's mom, Joan, and brother Paul out looking for her as they oh drove back no. to the Hindus. Yeah. Just Horrendous. So evil. When they got back to the house, Brady cleaned the inside and outside of the van, including the tires. He cut up all of his clothes and his shoes and he burned them on the fire. He then threw the knife into the fire and cleaned the spade. The next day, he'd throw the blackened knife into a local river. He then brought a record for Myra. Ken Thorne and Orchestra playing the theme tune to the movie Commando. Now, in the USA, it was called Commando and in the UK, it was called Legions of the Last Patrol. So this was meant to be a gift or an anniversary present of their first kill. And this song will be a reminder of this murder for the rest of their lives. And it was something that he did time and time again in mm. order to comm- commemorate every murder. Myra says that this murder brought them closer together than ever before. Ian was delighted and they celebrated with wine that night when they got home. Amos, Pauline's father, filed a missing persons report with the police the night she went missing. Of course, the first thoughts were that she was a runaway. The rumour mill was rife with speculation that she had run away with the boy from the fairground. Her family were adamant that she would never have run away. Hindley turned 21 11 days later and a friend who owned, the friend who owned the van that she had borrowed said that this was now going to be a gift for her 21st birthday. She would Generous. La- I know. She would later sell this van to a police officer for £25. This police officer she ended up having an affair with and and at one and during this time was thinking about joining the police. When Brady heard about this, he encouraged her to go and join the police so they would have an ear on the inside mm. and this actually would turn her off the idea altogether. Yeah. So Joan and um, Pauline's mom was very vocal with the media, doing whatever she could to get Pauline back. Both Joan and Amos searched high and low for Pauline, checking bus stations, following any leads, any sightings, etc., Police drained the local canal, local ponds, tracked fairgrounds, but couldn't find any trace or sound of Pauline. Awful. So it's November 1963, four months after their first victim, Pauline, was murdered. Ian turns to Myra one evening when they're watching telly and says, I want to do another one. His lust and sexual attraction to children was becoming all-consuming and he specifically wanted their next victim to be younger than Pauline Reed was. 
This is because they would be much easier to overpower and control. Um, as we know, Brady is a man who desires ultimate control and power over another person. And what's an easier victim to physically overpower than a young child? No, I know. Myra later claimed she didn't want to help Brady in procuring another victim. Claimed, by the way, another victim. But let's be honest, it is Myra. She's not exactly a pillar of honesty. What did you say? Take her with the sword from the 70s? Like every, <laughs> yes. All the salt from all the 70s. So they organized hiring a rental car, which Myra facilitates on her own and drove to a lake in Staffordshire and spent the day walking around hiking areas there. They then get back in Myra's hire car and begin driving to Huddersfield. En route, they stop to go into a shop there. Before she exits the car, she proceeds to put on a black wig. Now, this wig was something that they thought would help throw people off the scent and help her hide her identity should anyone be able to give a description of them down the line. She then strolls into the shop and buys a spade or or a shovel, I guess they say in America, um, a knife and some cord. Hardly the actions of an unwilling participant or someone being forced into helping commit any crimes. Mm. You know, she walks in herself. Um, Now, all set with their ominous new purchases, they drove back to Manchester, stopping on the way to scout out a really busy popular market in Ashton-under-Lyne, which was always bustling with people, including children. Now, once they're back in their own neck of the woods, they went to the cinema and they watched a James Bond film in order to create an alibi. Now, all of this is in preparation for the possibility that they ever become suspects down the line. And so if they're ever questioned, they've got a pre-rehearsed story to explain they couldn't possibly have carried out the crime as they were at the cinema watching James Bond. Um, so like, again, it goes back to how planned out yeah. every last detail is. He, You're right, he's way ahead of his time. Because yeah. you know he that was- he was thinking of these things and Myra was happily going along. But the fact that he even had the, the foresight to think mm. about this is is actually you know astounding yeah it really um, is so myra then drops brady home um but yeah just just imagine a couple who are supposedly in love it's normal that they'd be sitting at the cinema and discussing their future or bonding over popular films but these two savages are bonding over and building their relationship by planning to murder little children whilst they're at the cinema it's yeah it's i can't disturbing. i can't get my head around it there's been ample opportunity for Myra to back out or to tell someone, like the policeman, for example, yeah. um, and see sense in all this time. And it's been months since Pauline was killed. It's been like four months now. So she had so many chances and she, she still hasn't. So this relationship dynamic and the intricacies of it all just absolutely just astounds me. Now, Ian gets his motorbike and drives to her house. They've taken the precaution of laying down plastic sheets in the boot of the hire car, which they got specifically to commit a murder. Once that's done, Ian rocks up um, with the the spade and a torch. Um, Myra puts the black wig back on and now, unfortunately, they are ready to go hunting for their next victim. The plan is Myra finds a victim, drives them all to the moors where they can then carry out their sick plan. So the early evening of Saturday, 23rd November, 12-year-old John Kilbride is with friends helping market stall holders pack up their goods to make some pocket money at that busy market that they'd already scouted out earlier. It's called Ashton Market. Brady and Hindley spot young John and approach him whilst he's standing at a carpet stall snacking on crisps. 
They said his mum and dad would be worried about him and they could give him a lift home in their car. And to further tempt him in, they said they've got a bottle of sherry in there that he could try. So together, the three walk towards the hire car, which was a Ford Anglia, and they get in. Little does John Kilbride know, he has just got hours to live. In the car, Myra starts driving whilst Brady turns to John and says, my girlfriend's lost a glove up on the moors. This bloody glove This freaking glove. It'd be nice if you could help us find it. So John, being the nice, helpful boy he was, agrees, and so they all drive to the moors. Hindley waits in the car as Brady leads John across the moorland. Suddenly, he pushes the young boy down where he rapes him, taunting him the whole time before using the serrated knife that they'd bought to cut his throat. This didn't work. So Brady, it didn't work as well as Brady had hoped. So he uses a piece of string, um, likely his own shoelace, to strangle the poor boy. Brady then digs a makeshift grave using the shovel from the car and buries John's body. It's utterly heartbreaking just rereading this. The police thought that this was just another case of a child who'd gone missing by running away and that he'd be home soon. Another, again, he's a runaway, he's a runaway. Um, He absolutely was not a runaway. And what nobody knew at this time was that innocent John had become the second victim of one of the most horrific killing sprees in British history. Interestingly, if they had been caught after killing these two victims, they would have been hanged because the death penalty was still in place at this point. John had been the eldest of seven children from Ashton Underlin. Um, so he had he came from quite a big family. He had loads of brothers and sisters. This is so sad. His mother, Sheila, had religiously set the dinner table for her missing boy for two years after oh his murder, God. up until his body was found buried on the moors. It makes me want to cry. And actually, um, his gravesite, Brady and Myra would go back there and pose for pictures on top of it with their dog and on top of Pauline's as well and take pictures of it on their grave sites. Um, that was with um, Myra's new puppy, wasn't it? Yeah. Puppet. So Myra's granny's dog, Lassie, had a litter and Puppet was one of them. Yeah, and he, you will see him in pictures, which yeah, we there is post. A, We'll put that photo up of yeah. Myra standing over poor John Cobbard's grave with Puppet mm. in her arms. Um. So six months later, on the 16th of June, 1964, Myra receives a new record from Brady. It's over by Roy Orbison. Keith Bennett was 12 years old. He was the oldest of six children. They were all super close-knit. They were a really super close-knit family. His mother, Winnie, had separated from Keith's father when she was young. When he was young, sorry. Um... He came from a nice family and he had a great relationship with his stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, and even called him dad. Keith loved the movies and he and his stepsister, who was close in age to him, would often go to the movies together. It was their little treat, something that they would do together. Mm. He was a really nice older brother. He'd play football with his little brothers. He, they really loved him and they were close. They were a really lovely family. On the night of the 16th of June, Winnie had arranged to go to her weekly bingo session. Her mother, who lived a few streets over, was to have the children for the night. And then the plan was to drop them home before school the next morning and Winnie would walk them to school. Keith was on his way over to his grandmother's when Myra pulled up beside him. As Hannah has mentioned, she had taken to wearing these disguises. Mm. So again, she had this wig on with a scarf covering it and she, Ian, was sitting in the back of the car. He indicated to Myra to pull over when he spotted Keith. Myra said she needed some help at moving some boxes. She would give him a reward for helping. 
He agreed and he got into the car. And when he noticed Ian, she said Ian was there to help too. Then the same old ruse about the glove came out. Poor Keith agreed to help Myra find this glove and they made their way up towards the moors. I'm never going to look at a glove in the same way oh, after this. Good sake. Never wearing them again. <laughs> um, when they arrived, Ian and Keith started walking into the moors to look for this glove. Ian had brought his camera with him this time. He was gone for over 30 minutes and when he returned, he was covered in dirt. Ian told Myra that he had assaulted Keith, strangled him and then taken photos of him. He then buried him in a shallow grave. He buried the spade too. And once they got home again with his forensic um, obsession, he cleans up the car, cut up all the clothes and got Mara to burn them all on the fire. I mean, he was really ahead of Th- his time. He was so thorough, mm. so premeditated. And he he knew, he obviously knew what was going to come in the future that eventually, like, yeah. you know. So initially, Winnie, Keith's mother, didn't realise he was missing. It was only the next morning when the grandmother dropped the kids off before school that the women realised Keith had never made it to the grandmother's house. Both were distraught and immediately began searching, going first to the school and then to the police. Again, the police had no leads. Winnie immediately thought that whatever had happened to John Kilbride had happened to her Keith too. So she made the so connection. She, she made the connection straight She's, away. Winnie's a legend. Mm. We're going to get into her later. She is such a legend. What an amazing woman. She knew. She knew that that other family were like they. She believed the other family that he wasn't a runaway. Yeah. She believed something had happened to they him. They know their own children, don't mm. they? They know that what they're capable of. They wouldn't run away. And when Keith went missing, she said she knew. So the grandmother blamed herself for not checking in with Winnie when Keith never came over. But again, this was the time before phones. Like, you didn't even have landlines. No, and also you didn't know... This This is unheard of, this kind of mm. stuff, you know? Serial killers, the phrase had never been coined. Yeah. That wasn't coined till the 70s. Mm. Um, you would never expect that in, like, a little town where they're living, these things were going on. There'd never been such thing as a killer couple either. Well, not, yeah. not in England, anyway. Bonnie and Clyde, maybe in America. That was about it. So, again, speculation was rife as to what had happened to Keith. Runaway, etc. Um, a woman even stopped Winnie in the street one day to say to her that you do know that your son has been chopped to pieces and fed to the police. <gasps> what? Yeah. Somebody stopped her in the street and said that to her what one day. What the hell? So, obviously, Winnie was distraught by this. Winnie said she knew that he that Keith was dead when he came to her in a dream. Keith's body was actually never found. Yeah. So, so sad. Well, guys, we're going to have to leave it there, I think, for this week because we are going to do a two-parter of this because it's very... Very, it's a very intricate case mm-hmm. um, but do make sure that you uh, follow us on all our social medias TikTok Facebook and Instagram Instagram Twitter. and Twitter and all of them guys and send us messages don't forget to rate us as well and Ooh, yes, please, please please tell your friends as well if they like ever into true crime please just um, recommend our podcast if you enjoy it yeah. we'll see you all next week for part two of the Moore's Murders and Bye. don't forget we also have our email account at don't the mom oh, at gmail.com so anything stories anything like that that you think would interest us please do let us know yeah. anything we really want to be able to read these things out so anything that you think will be interesting for the podcast do let us know yeah we'll see you next week for part two bye thanks bye